One of the truths that we often forget as Christians is how radical Christianity appeared to the Greco-Roman culture in which it began to spread. There are a number of authors who have spoken, written on this, Nancy Piercy, Rodney Stark, and others. They've written about quite a bit about this particular, particularly in relation to men, women, and children. The Roman world was one of male dominance. Women were clearly second-class citizens. Rodney Stark wrote that the Roman world was a male culture that held marriage in low esteem. Women were used by men who typically did not restrict their marital relations to their wives, but included other women, slaves, and even children. Abortion was rampant. Girl babies were often singled out for infanticide. Violence against the young and innocent was common. Assassinations, executions, and war were a part of life. Today, there are more and more similarities in our culture to that of the Romans. If we look at the entertainment or sports, we see that the greatest draw is the actors or players who demonstrate the Nietzsche-like Superman who dominates the other players and who shows little or no pity. Watch just about any football game uh, player make a touchdown, and what do they do? They dance, they throw up their hands, and they gyrate and call forth the praise of the crowd. We see this characteristic more and more in women as well, the so-called Mary Sue movies, uh, where women are pummeling men three times their size, and, or we see in women in sports who are glorified for dominating their opponents, uh, they're commonplace. With this in mind, look back at the text if you have your Bibles open to Galatians 5. Look at verses 19 through 21. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now imagine people groups that have not had a Christian influence and collectively live out their lives in the flesh with these kinds of character qualities, if I call it qualities. And then comes along, Paul, Paul comes along with words like these, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Many authors note the draw that Christianity had for women who found the sexual ethics and the calls for self-control and peace a welcome respite to the lives they lived. But this should not lead one to think that Christianity is primarily a woman's religion, nothing of the sort. We'll see instead that the call to Christian character is a call for the greatest strengths of both men and women that can only come through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So we come this evening to our text on the fruit of the Spirit and the character, quality of, and the virtue of gentleness. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we prepare to look at the text. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we understand living in this culture with the distortions that come with the fruit of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, and how that is being promulgated in our culture and being seen more and more. We need the clarity of your word. And so as we, we pray, as we look at this particular virtue uh, that you promise to produce in us, I mean, you give us understanding and uh, clarity in understanding what the word is and what it means and how we can apply it to our own lives, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I'd like to begin my sermons with some context. <clears throat> so by way of reminder, we're in the book of Galatians, a book written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. 
what we now know as modern Turkey. And Paul's concern in this letter is to teach and inform the Galatians that God has chosen them to be his adopted children. This gift was made possible by the death of the Son of God in the place of his chosen people on their behalf. And the realization of that relationship is through the exercise of faith. Now, note, I did not say that that relationship was established by being a good person. If there are any here tonight, perhaps a visitor, even a member, who believes that salvation is something that can be obtained by good works, then you need to reckon with Paul, who flatly contradicts that. The book of Galatians makes it clear, your salvation, even your faith, are God's gift to you, not yours to him. All this to say that we need to remind ourselves that Christians are not just people who are merely nice. Christians are not people who are just trying to turn over a new leaf or to be a better you. To become a Christian is to be united to Christ. It's the beginning of a spiritual life that is to be lived for God and lived by God through us. It is to strive for godliness through discipline so that God's character can be seen in us and so that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds rather than conform to the world by polluting our minds. Paul teaches us that we are not just saved from, but we are saved to. That is, we are saved from guilt, shame, ultimately hell, but we're saved to a life in which we desire to please God and to become like him. We're made in his image, and his image has been marred in us due to sin. And so the Lord desires to rid us of that remaining sin and to transform us into the pure image of Christ. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is where we're getting into our text here, dwells in us, and that in his presence is not without effect. As God dwells in us, his presence, his work begins to change us and produce what the Bible, what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit of God. We've already considered a number of the fruit before, so tonight we have worked our way to the fruit of gentleness and so we'll turn to that now let's define the word gentleness and see how it's used in scripture the greek word employed by paul here is translated in various different translations we'll translate it as gentleness humility or meekness now we tend not to associate gentleness with strength we kind of see them as opposite ends of the spectrum but this greek word actually combines both gentleness and strength One lexicon describes it as gentle strength or power with reserve. For the believer, we just think of it as meekness. It's gentle force is another way of thinking of it. It's a divinely balanced virtue that can operate only through faith. Now, we might typically think that gentleness should be coupled with kindness. We say, well, look through the fruit of the Spirit. I see kindness, gentleness. Those seem like kind of just little nuances of the same thing. And there are reasons, good reasons, to associate those two together, but it actually might be more accurate to think of gentleness as connected to that last fruit of the Spirit, self-control, because it's a combination of power and control. For our purposes, then, gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit in which, which is manifested in controlled strength and in humble meekness toward others. The fruit of the Spirit which is manifested in controlled strength and in humble meekness toward others. Because this is a fruit of the Spirit, then we recognize immediately that this is a communicable attribute of God. 
meaning that God acts with gentleness and desires that we develop that same virtue, that same character. And there are verses that teach us of God's gentleness. For example, Psalm 18:35, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Isaiah 40:11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Though we often picture God in his omnipotent strength and power, we refer to this often. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about God. He says in Isaiah 42.3, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Of course, God as God himself and as the second person of the Godhead, Jesus demonstrates the same attribute. He even says it of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Though Jesus' humility and meekness is demonstrated over and over in the New Testament, perhaps one of the better examples is found in Matthew 21, 5, in this context, Jesus is in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the Passover and before his arrest and his crucifixion. Here the crowd is cheering. They're, they're throwing the palm branches in front of him. They're cheering. Here he is, the maker of the universe, all-powerful God in the flesh, the one before whom all, all creation will fall in either worship or fear. And how does he come to Jerusalem. We read in Matthew 21, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, gentle, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do we have any examples of men who, or women who are humble in Scripture? Well, one of the classic ones is Moses. If you want to look at the text in Numbers chapter 12, <clears throat> we're going to read verses 1 through 8 here. As we consider this topic of gentleness, we read these words, and this is the, during the, that moment when Miriam and Aaron, his brother and sister, sister and brother, uh, were attempting a kind of insurrection. And what happens? We read Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? The Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. The Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood at the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the consequences come in the verses following. <clears throat> a couple of important truths we can glean from the text. First note that God describes Moses as humbler than all men on the face of the earth. And yet here he is leading a multitude, perhaps a couple million of people through the desert, 
One of the things we see here then is meekness is not to be equated with being a pansy or hiding in the shadows or being risk averse. He is a mighty leader, but he's also a humble, meek leader. We also note Moses' humility. Moses does not try to vindicate himself in the face of the insurrection of Miriam and Aaron. Rather, he remains silent while God takes him to the woodshed for some humble pie. This reminds us of our Lord and Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus and Peter, 1 Peter 2, where we're told how to suffer righteously. Peter writes, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Gentle people, meek people, know when to open their mouths and they know when to keep them shut. We can learn a lot from our Lord here. What does the scripture teach us about humility? The first thing we need to note in our study of gentleness is that God calls each of us to pursue gentleness. It's not an optional virtue. We know several times in the series of the fruit of the Spirit that we have in the the series on the fruit of the Spirit that we have a role in the development of this fruit. In the employing of the means of grace, the fruit is not only a work of the Spirit, it's not a work that just magically appears, it's a work of the Spirit that appears as a result of us using the means of grace. That's why Paul could tell the church at Colossae, therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, this is our word, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. How do you know if you lack meekness or gentleness? Let me give you some questions. You can do a little self-analysis with this inventory. Are you known as being proud, pushy, or demanding? And by the way, I'm not asking, do you believe you're that way? I'm asking, do other people say it about you? That's a more accurate barometer. Do people say this about you? Or do you always find a reason that they're wrong? Do you always have to be right? Do you always find a way to justify yourself so that you are the innocent party or the victim and never the perpetrator? Do you readily submit to authority? Or perhaps another way to ask us is, do your authorities consider it a joy to be an authority over you? Are you a social justice warrior? <clears throat> do you resort to shouting, angry texts, backbiting, gossip, or announcing the injustice to as wide an audience as you can find? Do you use your strength, physical, mental, personal, to bully others or to push your agenda? Do you, position, uh, do you use your position of authority to lord it over people? Do you regularly remind people of your superior position to keep them in line? When was the last time you, with complete humility, asked someone to forgive you? No holds barred, just flat out, no justification, no if, but, or maybe, just, I was wrong, will you forgive me? That was actually in the text in Colossians that Paul wrote. If anyone has a complaint against it, even, even as Christ forgave, so must you. 
right there in the context of the humility and long-suffering. Remember, let's not confuse gentleness with subservience or fear or weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. Letting people walk over you because you're afraid to confront them is not gentleness. Unwillingness to call someone on their sin purely because you fear their response is not meekness. Shyness and introversion are not the same as gentleness or meekness. With these truths in mind, with the example of God himself and of Jesus himself, of Moses, I want to take us through the rest of this sermon, much of the sermon, to look at various passages where that word gentleness is used. Also, gentleness, meekness, humility by the New Testament authors. We'll see that there's a broad range. I'm going to give you six applications to people or situations in which the word is employed by the authors. The first one is in the context of confrontation. If you have your Bibles open to Galatians 5, just look down to Galatians 6, 1 through 3. And notice our word is used there again. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Why would Paul call for gentleness in the context of confronting someone else's sin? It's because it is such a ripe occasion to reflect on your own superiority or to justify it like the Pharisee when he said, I thank you that I'm not like that man. If you ever need to confront someone, even your own um, your children, others, remember that God calls us to gentleness, self-reflection, lest we fall into the same sin as those that we're confronting. Paul exemplifies for us gentleness when he confronts the members of the church at Corinth. He writes in 2 Corinthians 10, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence uh, am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. So in confrontation, we're to use gentleness. The second area is in body life, in the body life of the church. The attitude of meekness and humility should mark us here at Woodruff Road. We should all be striving for meekness of attitude in how we deal with each other. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Therefore, the prisoner, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace well not just in confrontation should gentleness be present not just in body life between one another but in the area of leadership gentleness is a word that's used in the context of leadership contrary to human wisdom leadership I'm sorry, a gentleness should mark the leaders of this church. Paul wrote in 1 first, in first Timothy, and he wrote to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul instructs Titus to teach humility and gentleness to his congregation. He writes in Titus 3, remind that is, remind his people, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Well, again, confrontation, body life, leadership. How about for women? Would we expect that for women? 
We might think that this is a character quality that's typically called for in men. But we see Peter includes it in his counsel to wives in 1 Peter 3, when he writes, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Remember, the word is not only referring to just like a physical touch or softness, but also, and maybe even primarily, to an attitude of mind that is humble and meek. Here, uh, it is combined with the word quiet, as in humble and quiet, two qualities that are sorely lacking in our feminist hyper-communicative age, where people fear, feel it's just they're free to publicly air their grievances, make known all the injustices done to them, while insisting that something be done about it. Well, as I noted, uh, gentleness is clearly a character quality that men need to grapple with. This is our next category. Particularly in relation to their wives, to their children. Note how Paul exhorts men to be cautious and judicious when it comes to this area. For example, we read in Ephesians 6.4, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And regarding wives, we read in Colossians 3, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be bitter toward them. The word bitter there is sometimes translated harsh. <clears throat> there are other do nots. <clears throat> do not, these are the do nots, that is. Do not provoke or be harsh. But what is the right, godly, spirit-driven approach? Gentleness, meekness, humility. Ephesians 5, we're told a husband should treasure their wives. We read in Ephesians 5, 28, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Your wife is made in God's image, and she's entrusted to you to protect, to love, to cherish, and to encourage. That takes gentleness. One of the sad realities of our time is the abuse of scripture to justify the abuse of women. Because historically our culture has been saturated with Christian teaching, it shouldn't surprise us when there are those who take that doctrine of male headship and they distort it to justify all manner of mistreatment of men, of, of wives and their children. But when this is done, all the other scriptures calling for wisdom, humility, meekness, gentleness, loving servanthood, they're all ignored. By the way, I warn the young ladies here in our congregation about marrying a man who gets this doctrine wrong. Stay away, stay far away from a man given to harshness or violence. Let me suggest something to help both the elders. We talked about leadership, we talked about men, husbands, <clears throat> and that in regards to this position of authority that you have. Recently, Pastor Robbins was preaching from 1 Peter 5, and a verse struck, uh, stuck out to me that I find helpful in this regard. It's one that, you know how it is, you read your Bible and you read a verse and go, I never thought about that before. But it's 1 Peter 5, 2. Peter instructs the, his, the elders of the church. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I think that instruction to be an example is a helpful one for us. It's very practical. We begin by asking an example of what? Well, clearly an example of godly character 
and Christ-like, spirit-filled humility with all the practices of one who is committed to Christ. So ask yourself, when you're interacting with your wife and your children, am I setting the example of Christ-likeness for my kids right now? And if the answer is no, ask for forgiveness and change your ways through prayer, wise decisions, leaning upon the work of the Holy Spirit to help you grow in those areas. Well, the final area, the sixth one that I had mentioned, is in the area, strangely enough, of apologetics. This is one more example where this uh, word is used in a couple of different contexts. For example, in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, we read, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We see it in Paul as well, and Paul writes to, second, to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, giving him instruction on how to interact with those who do not believe. Paul writes, this is a great verse, I love this verse, he says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will perhaps grant them uh, repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. No browbeating, no intellectual bullying, just humble conversation. How do we do this? Well, look at the verses. What's the state of the person to whom you are bringing the gospel? They are taken captive by the enemy. So much so, they cannot escape his clutches apart from the work of God in them, unless God grants them forgiveness. And knowing this about their spiritual state should help you learn patience and gentleness in talking to them. Not, you're not asking any of them that they are not able to give apart from the work of the Lord. Of course, this is true in any encounter. If the one to whom you are speaking is not capable of following your instructions, then shouting louder and threatening is not going to help. It's like speaking English louder to someone who only understands French. You ever done that? If you've ever traveled overseas, you'll find yourself doing that. Where is the bank? And you think somehow shouting is going to help. Well, with unbelievers who don't know the Lord, shouting is not going to change it. It's going to be presenting gently and humbly the word of the gospel and then asking for the Lord's work in their heart. One point I want to emphasize as we wind down. I want to make sure that you understand that God is not calling us to gentleness in place of toughness. He is not calling for meekness in place of boldness. He's not calling for humility in place of confidence or courage. I think that too often people think that the height of Christian ethics is effeminacy or softness. But clearly, that is a misrepresentation. We see, for example, two cases where Jesus steps into a situation with courage and fearlessness and boldness that undermines his thinking that he was just soft, uh, just a soft man. For example, we see him turning over the tables in the marketplace. Now, do you think that those men whose tables were overturned were weak? They were just... Uh, men who they didn't care about their money, they just ran away? Do you think that their love of money would not have motivated them to potential violence against Jesus? Well, certainly, yes. But that did not deter Jesus from stepping up and flipping over the tables despite how they might react. 
He was incredibly bold, incredibly courageous. Or the time when Jesus was in the context of the Pharisees, surrounded by Pharisees, and he calls them whitewashed tombs. And he states to the Pharisees, you make converts twice as fit for hell as you are. Imagine saying that to these men who are so powerful in that culture. And here we have Jesus just unashamedly speaking to them that way. They're hard words spoken to powerful men who would eventually put Christ on the cross, but that doesn't deter him from speaking hard truths. The Apostle Paul helps us understand that we can, in fact, hold both strength and courage along with gentleness and humility. In his letters to the Thessalonians, he writes uh, that he wore two different hats. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he writes, As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. But just a few sentences earlier, he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul charges, exhorts on the one hand, he confronts like a father, but on the other hand, he is gentle, even like a nursing mother with her children. So this is not an either-or proposition for Christians. Christians are to be tough, strong, bold, courageous in the occasions in which Scripture calls for you to be so. But Christians are also to be gentle, humble, and meek in the occasions in which Scripture calls you to be so. We noted earlier that the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche believed that these virtues, they weren't, he believed that these kind of virtues we're talking about, the fruit of the Spirit, were not virtues at all. In fact, he believed that they made people, especially men, soft. Well, how did things work out for Nietzsche and his philosophy? He taught about the Superman, the man who didn't embrace any of these things, any of these virtues of Christianity. We need to get rid of that and just be the the ubermensch, the superman, who just goes against the meaninglessness of life and just asserts himself. How did that work out for Nietzsche? The man who condemned Christianity as weak and dangerous to human flourishing, well, his teachings were a great motivator for Hitler's Germany and the deaths of millions. Nietzsche himself went mad, and the last 11 years of his life were spent in an insane asylum where his sister sold tickets for people to look at the madman. So how would we answer the question, how do you do? Not too good. The world's distortions on either end of this spectrum are manifest. Excessive force and brutality mark our sports and entertainment. But we also note that there's excessive accommodation, or we might say the worldly gentleness, of those who live to choose to live irresponsibly or refuse to work or invest. The distorted gentleness of our culture is evidenced in the massive welfare state, which demonstrates a warped understanding of what it means to humbly serve others. What does God promise to those who are meek? What's the the payout? I can tell you what it's not. It's not fame. It's not going to be money. It won't be popularity. It won't be a suite at the Super Bowl. Jesus tells us what awakes the meek in Matthew 5 when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I trust that provides ample incentive to ask the Lord through his Holy Spirit to transform you into the image of Christ, the lowly and gentle warrior and savior of the world.
Let's pray. Father, indeed, we do thank you for the gentleness that you have shown towards us, a rebellious, self-righteous, autonomous people. Yet you drew us to yourself, and you continue to love us, to draw us to Christ, to make us into the image of Christ, to encourage us, to comfort us, to instruct us. Indeed, you are a loving and gentle God. For these things we give you thanks. We ask, Father, that you would graciously continue that work in us so that we might be more like you.